Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 167 of the Sustainable-ish podcast for the imperfectly green, the eco-warrior, the everyday hero. I am your host, Jen Gale. How are you doing? You hanging on in there? If you're finding things tough at the moment on the whole eco-anxiety front, as I will very freely hold my hands up and admit I personally am, do go back and have a listen to episode 128. It's called Turn the Tide on Climate Anxiety. And it's with Megan Kennedy Woodard, who is one half of Climate Psychologists and co-author of the book by the same name as the podcast title, Turn the Tide on Climate Anxiety. Really useful episode and super, super useful book. And I will link to both the episode and the book in the show notes if that's helpful for people. Before I let you know about this week's guest, I just wanted to give a quick shout out for November's Carbon Literacy course, which still has a few spaces on it. If off the back of last week's Climate Science 101 episode, helps if I could say it with the brilliant Climate Adam, you're keen to continue your climate education in what is hopefully a relatively fun way and somewhere where you can have a safe space to come and to learn and start to get your head around what's really happening to our beautiful planet and most importantly what we can do about it please do come and join me you even get a shiny certificate out of it there's lots of details on the website which you can find at www.asustainablelife.co.uk forward slash carbon hyphen literacy i'm really not expecting you to be scribbling all that down i will pop that link into the show notes for you So this week's episode follows on nicely from last week's in an almost like I planned it type way. Please don't get used to that. Uh, And we're looking at some of the most common, I don't know, climate myths or misinformation or maybe even outright denial that seem to abound on the internet. And we're going to be debunking them. And to help me to do that, I am joined by Dr. Ella Gilbert, the second doctor on the podcast in a row, who is a climate scientist and we will hear a boxer working at the British Antarctic Survey. And Ella's work looks specifically at how climate change is affecting the Antarctic region and how changes there have a knock on impact on the wider climate around the planet. And she's another example alongside Adam Levy, who we heard from last week, of someone who is knee deep in this incredibly complex science but still able to communicate that complexity in a way that we can all understand and I think that skill is very much not to be underrated. So we hear about Ella's journey to becoming a climate scientist, a little bit about her work in the Antarctic, what climate models are, the pros and cons of attempting to engage climate deniers online, possible approaches to doing so. And then we start to really dive into some of the common climate myths, getting the actual facts from an actual climate scientist. (laughs) And hopefully this will help us all feel a little bit more informed when we see some of this stuff out and about on the interweb. Again, this episode was recorded before all of the latest political shenanigans is the nicest word I can find for it, uh, which is why it's not referenced. But uh, listening back, it would have been really interesting to hear from Ella her thoughts on whether the latest from the UK government will have boosted the amount of climate denial and misinformation on the internet. So here is Dr Ella Gilbert. Enjoy. Hello, Ella. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. 
Now, I was just saying before we hit record, you look like you're somewhere um, proper and official today. And you said you're in the office. Where is the office? Yeah, the office is in Cambridge at the British Antarctic Survey. The British Antarctic Survey. So that's obviously who you work for. Otherwise, you've just kind of snuck into someone else's office. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm actually in somebody else's oh, okay. office, but uh, I'm allowed yeah. to be here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what's what's your background? How, how do you end up working for, for the British Antarctic Survey? Uh, via a long and circuitous route. Um, I I guess I started doing geography and then I went to university, discovered meteorology, uh, figured out that you could make a career out of looking out the window at clouds um, and then basically changed tack and ended up being a climate scientist, which I'd kind of always wanted to be, but never thought I had the maths or physics background enough to back it up. But turns out, you can be a climate scientist regardless of of that. So is, do you become a climate scientist when you do like a climate science degree or can you do a geography degree and then go into climate research or like is there an official qualification that makes you a climate scientist? Uh, I think it's just working okay. on climate and being a scientist. <laughs> being a scientist so I, I actually, <laughs> I did do a geography degree, yeah. actually, um, and then I did a climate science oh, degree. Wow. So I guess I fulfill both of those criteria. Uh, yeah, my master's is literally just called climate, climate science or climate change or something like that. <laughs> I did my undergrad and my master's and then I did, uh, for my sins, I did a PhD um, at the British Antarctic Survey, which is where yeah. I am now. And then went away, did some other jobs, and then have ended up uh, coming back to the British Antarctic Survey, which feels a bit like my spiritual home, given that I'm completely obsessed with the polar regions, and particularly Antarctica. So it does feel a little bit like a, a, a homecoming yeah. to, to be back what here. What was your yeah. PhD? My PhD was looking at uh, what's causing ice shelves which are these floating platforms of ice that fringe the antarctic continent what's causing them to melt so um whether that's weather patterns or clouds or climate related mm. uh, atmospheric phenomena uh basically trying to figure out how the weather interacts with ice mm. in new and amazing ways so what is causing them to melt uh, Come on, look, can you condense activity. your whole PhD into like two sentences for me, please? <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of complicated <laughs> processes, but uh, <laughs> no, mostly. Well, I mean, of course, there's the anthropogenic human caused climate change that is uh, driving temperatures mm. up, and when you have warmer temperatures, ice tends to melt more frequently. Um, but look, I'm disentangling like the specifics. Um, it's it's lots of different things acting all at the same time. Okay, um, and so did you actually? This this might sound like a really stupid question. Like, did you actually go to Antarctica to do that? Because I could imagine that you could just spend a lot of time looking at historic data sets, and um, rather than actually having to go and be cold. And luckily, I did get to go and be cold. Um, <laughs> not actually that cold though, because you know you go with all yeah. your kit. Um, my my entire PhD pivoted on uh, climate modelling. So somehow, despite the lack of maths and physics in my background, I've ended up being like a hardcore climate modelling okay. physicist. Um, uh, I don't know how I ended up here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of it involves writing code and running simulations. That's already making me kind just of go. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the kind of attitude I would have had beforehand as well. Uh, but turns out... You can do it if you're 
Uh, Put your mind to it. And it's actually a really amazing, um, amazing tool to explore a place that is very difficult to get to and obviously has lots of uh, emissions associated. With I was going to say that. Well. Do you feel a like a guilt for going to a place like that that is still I don't know you can tell us if it is but it's it my perception is it's relatively pristine and untouched and then then we're sort of going there and humanizing it and obviously as you said all the emissions created we're going there it's that sort of um accusations of hypocrisy you know of, of causing uh, worsening the problem but actually what you're trying to do is help it I think you have to trade off the mm. benefits of understanding the environment, how it's changing, what we need to do to protect it against the mm. emissions associated with that research. If I was going there for a jolly uh, to, you know, I don't know, take pictures of rocks or something or laugh at penguins, yes. I might feel more guilt. But I think the fact that I was going there to do research into climate yeah. change um I felt was justifiable um but you know every research method even even though you might think you know sitting here mm-hmm. in Cambridge running my climate models has you know zero carbon cost actually there's a huge amount of um emissions associated with that because models run on enormous computers that take a lot a lot of electricity to uh to run and also to heat and cool them so it's nothing is without cost yeah um so I was going to say two questions, there's probably more. Um, just picking up on that models thing, like we probably all heard the the thing, oh, there are computer models that exist or there are climate. Like, I don't really understand what that is. <laughs> no, they're a real, real tricky thing to understand. I think I got halfway through my PhD using models to clarify without really okay. understanding what, what was going on. So um, it, to put it simply, models can be like, anything from a really simple kind of theoretical maths equation to a really complicated multi-dimensional representation of the real world in a computer space um and that's what we so the way we predict the weather for example that is on a computer model um the thing that tells the app whether you need to take an umbrella or not that's a Mm. computer model that gets run by the met office and actually that's exactly the same model that i use so i'm using exactly the same one but instead of running it over the uk um i'm running it in antarctica or the arctic and then using that to kind of explore what's going on so it's in in that sense it's like many 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 lines of code and then that line those lines of code kind of uh, capture the maths of the environment of things like how air moves how wind patterns set themselves up how clouds form how that influences rain or snow um because we know this from going out and taking measurements in the real world and then those relationships or those um those systems get put into in some cases slightly simplified but uh, put into math equations and then written into computer code that can do it for you so you can project into the future or you can fill in the gaps where you don't have any data for example in Antarctica where we have very few observations Um, and generally you can run experiments that are hypothetical which is a super useful uh, thing to be able to do. And how long have we had these climate models for? Uh, I mean, the simplest climate models have been around for a really long Seaweed. time. So, 
<laughs> yeah. So if we if we think about like the idea of I don't know if you've come across this idea of climate sensitivity, which is like uh, how much temperatures will rise if we double the amount of CO2 oh, okay. in the atmosphere. Yeah. So that's that's the basic, uh, basically like the impact of human caused yeah. climate change, um, and that is a the the model, if you like, to describe that is just a really simple bunch of maths and that was you, you say Asian simple bunch of maths I think it would be beyond. yeah yeah yeah. I mean I'll say yeah. simple because I, I don't want to touch yeah. it either <laughs> um and that is really oh. old but then if we're talking like computer models the first computer models were um in the 80s the first kind of very simple yeah. ones um James Hansen who testified to Congress in uh the mid 80s about the impacts of climate change he wrote a paper that described the one of the very first kind of multi uh systemic mm. uh climate models that had like a really simple ocean really simple right. atmosphere it had things like clouds and uh CO2 mm. in the atmosphere and these could change over time as you oh, run okay. it yeah 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 and um I mean this what what we're what I want to talk to you today about is sort of like some of these climate um sort of denially type myths and and so I guess this feeds really quite nicely and not very logically perhaps in the sort of sequence of questions but like one of the the things that we might hear is oh but these a a, these climate models like like how do we know you know do, do they work um, and then the other thing I hear is like, well, you know, it's dependent on people putting the data into what like people are just fudging the data. Like, <laughs> so how can we trust these models? Yeah, that is a really common question that you get or not question. Yeah, <laughs> <Let's be honest. laughs> yeah. So there's a really amazing quote that I use a lot. All models are wrong, but some are useful. Okay. So you cannot expect a climate model of whatever complexity to get completely accurate results. It's never going to happen because it's always going to be some kind of approximation. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we can use models for and what they're most useful for is for understanding how different things interact, how different components interact, and to get the kind of broad brush patterns of change we know from observations but also from models many generations of models that human caused greenhouse gas emissions are impacting the atmosphere the oceans it's causing temperatures to rise and if you look at the predictions from uh, models in the 90s and even the 70s um, you can track their predictions against observations to date. So we've now got like enough time since the first models were developed to kind of check their homework. And they've done pretty, pretty well, actually. Um, You can see there's a really good animation from uh, Carbon Brief uh, that summarises a paper by Zeke Hausfather, who looked at this exact thing. So he's basically checking yeah. the homework of, of old climate models to see how they track and how they stack up against uh, observed change. And most of them are really accurate because this is the kind of the big scale, yeah. big picture. When it comes to the kind of modelling I do is much more uh, zoomed yeah. in on specific regions or specific like uh, things that yeah. we don't know very much about. Um, and that requires a bit more like complexity. But when we're talking about the really big picture stuff, 
like how much temperature is going to rise in response to emissions mm. or um, how much sea levels are going to rise. They're really okay. good. And you can, there's a range. It's not like this is one value and this is the exact value it's going to be. It's more like it yeah. will likely be in this particular yeah. range. And generally speaking, that's exactly what's happened. Um, the other point about the data inputting um, is yeah, we we need models need to have really good quality in, uh, input data to make accurate projections. Mm. And you can't expect you can't give it's like junk in, junk yeah, out. Yeah. So you can't expect um, an athlete to eat junk food and produce good yeah. outputs on the track. Yeah. You know, it's the same same sort of uh relationship Mm. so if we have good quality observations and we do have really good quality observations now you know from airplanes from ships from stations that's staffed we have automatic weather stations um there's a coordinated effort all over the world to release weather balloons every single six hours um we have all of this huge amount of data and from satellites as well i should add um that covers the entire globe and that gives us really good quality Uh, information about the state of the atmosphere the state of the oceans the state of the land at any given time you put that into a Mm. model it churns it up and it produces much more accurate uh, predictions about what's going to happen um obviously climate deniers like to jump on um the validity of observations i've seen the rounds it's doing the rounds on twitter but there's um this person was questioning how hot temperatures were in I think it was somewhere in Italy recently. It's been shared so many times that the UN World Meteorological Organization, which is the UN body that um, controls all of the like the global network of observation, has issued a statement saying, no, no, we're pretty sure. <laughs> we know. <laughs> we know that ground temperature isn't air temperature. We're pretty clear on that. Um, and the station in question did actually, um, the ones that were in question did use standard uh, standardized observation techniques so when when we're when we're measuring um you know temperatures around the world are we measuring ground temperature or air temperature air temperature so the standard is to measure temperature with a thermometer that is two meters above the ground it has to be shaded um behind a, a screen so you're not just getting this artificial effect of the sun hitting a thermometer and heating it up. So it has to be shaded. And then there's another thermometer that has to verify that temperature, which is a different height. So you're definitely getting a two meter temperature. There shouldn't be a very big difference between two and one and a half or whatever it is meters. Um, and that has to be calibrated against a standardized number. And because that's the other thing that I've seen a lot doing the rounds, and I think it was um, particularly during the summer when we were getting all those record-breaking temperatures around the world, was people saying, "Well, um, that that particular one, that's now near an air- airport that never used to be there, so of course it's going to be hotter." Or that that one is now surrounded by concrete because the town has expanded, and so that's the reason why we're seeing all these higher temperatures, rather than the fact that the temperatures are higher. It's just that the the, the that sort of, um, I guess the their thought process if there is any is that there's sort of urban heat island effect you know and and the concrete and obviously it's warmer near airports because of all the airplanes and things like that like is is that I I say is that true like I know it's not true but (laughs) um the protocol for having these observation stations um states that you can't have any of these effects so the fact that there is 
you know, an airport 50 kilometers away um, shouldn't influence the temperatures. And the way that it's... I mean, the, the, the way the way that sort of it reads on Twitter is, is you know, like it's literally next to the runway. Yeah. Like you absolute idiots, what are you doing? You've got this this temperature station next to a runway. Um, yeah, no. And also deniers often like to misrepresent the truth in, in this kind of way um, to cherry pick the results to mask the things they don't want to show and to show the things that are that would appear to support their claims but the fact is that there's a huge gargantuan global effort to make sure that these kinds of observations are cross-checked they're validated they are it's ensured that they follow protocol and follow a standard technique Mm. so that you don't have these artifacts and you can see when you compare multiple different uh data sets, when you compare observations from nearby stations, from uh, countries as a whole, from the globe as a whole, mm. uh, from land as a whole, that the trend is is upwards. All of those stations are consistent. Yes, you might get some outliers, um, but the overall picture is one of warming and particularly in the polar regions and particularly over land. So this, this is a bit of a... Um niche question and, and if you go i have no idea what a ridiculous question like how many temperature measurement points are there in the whole world oh God. <laughs> are we talking like millions um i don't know actually um the it depends like, i've never seen one so obviously they don't exist obviously no no it's true it's, it's like gravity also doesn't exist if yeah. you can't see it um it it depends a little bit if you're talking about automatic weather stations okay. or staffed stations um, and then we also have loads of data points from ships and aircraft, which are traveling, which kind of supply because they're going anyway. They supply all of that um, information back to okay, yeah, this yeah, global yeah. network. Um, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I would say maybe hundreds of thousands. OK, so, I mean, it, it's a pretty robust. Quite a lot, yeah. Um, and you said that, you know, sometimes... Or often, I guess, climate deniers will, uh, you know, cherry pick these some of these outliers or some of these. Do you get accusations as a scientist of cherry picking the data that you're putting into these climate models? All the time, yeah. <laughs> I've had the whole book thrown at me uh, by these. Yeah, people. It's like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, um, they like to suggest that you're choosing your data, or that. Uh, the fact that your government funded somehow implies mm, that mm. you have a government agenda um, or... Which is weird because the government agenda at the moment doesn't seem particularly on the side of <laughs> yeah. doing much about the climate crisis. So why they'd be secretly bunging you some money to... Um, yeah. And you'd think that people that are funded by the fossil fuel industry would have more of an agenda yes, than someone yeah. who's publicly funded <laughs> by taxpayer money. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, the reason I wanted to, to talk to you about, um, or the thing that sort of made me get in touch with you was I watched a video that you did with um, Climate Adam, and I've just uh, haven't released it at, at the time of recording, but Adam's done a very kindly done an episode with us on like climate science. And I was like, I really want someone to kind of debunk some of these climate myths, because it can feel really difficult as someone who like, I feel like I know a bit, and, and I feel like I know enough to know when something's right and when something's absolute batshit crazy but I don't feel and I think lots of people feel like this I don't feel informed enough to go you're being a dick like and this is why you're being a dick like and and part of me thinks don't worry about it like I know there's quite a strong argument for um 
I think Catherine Hayhoe talks about this. She talks about like, you know, you're going to get like 10% of people at, at the denial end of the spectrum who we're never going to engage, never going to persuade. Just let them get on with it. Like, don't worry about it and spend your time and energy focusing on those people who are kind of are concerned, but don't really know what to do or, you know, and, and who might be persuaded by this batshit crazy 10%. Like, where do you sit on arguing with climate deniers? I think it's, yeah, it feels like they're a lot more numerous than they are. They are mm. a very vocal minority. I wouldn't even say it's 10%. I would say it's more like one. If you go on Twitter, whatever it is called now, or even on Facebook, <laughs> yeah, formerly known as Twitter, um, I think if you have to say you are brackets formerly known as, it probably means that your new name isn't like it. Um, oh my God, it looks like everyone in the world is 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 a climate denier. Or like just a really random thing, like a um, a, a council, like a town council, a, a county council, I think it was, in in um, posted something on Facebook, vaguely climate related, I can't remember what it was. And like there, you know, 20 comments, probably 18 of them were people going, what are you on about? Like the change away the way the temperature, blah, 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 blah. And so part of me thinks, Oh my God, no, like I'm I'm not going to engage with you. And then the other part of me thinks, but if there's nobody challenging them, the the person just scrolling through that will look at that and think, oh my God, the majority of people are really doubting this science. Like maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe we are being fooled. And so by ignoring it, do we allow it to escalate? I have three things to say about this. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> lots of these people are not real people. Lots of them are bots. Lots of them are funded. Mm -hmm. Lots of them are paid to sow the seeds of doubt. So who are they funded by? The shadowy people in the background, <laughs> the puppeteers. Um, I Well, I mean, lots of them have been linked to lobby groups that are linked to fossil fuel companies, for example, okay. um, or people that wish to spread dis disinformation in the same way that um, there was a lot of COVID disinformation yeah. um, and trying to kind of stir up this... Uh, air of uncertainty around very settled science um the second thing i have to say about this is yes you want to demonstrate to the people that are watching on the sidelines i think that's the own that's the main argument to yeah. having to engaging in any kind of debate mm. with deniers is that mm. it's you're not you're not you have to understand you're not going to change their mind yeah it's yeah. either they're they're paid for it or yeah. they're so down that rabbit hole yeah. that you're just not going to change their mind especially when you're so up different to them because of polarization mm. then they're going to get more polarized by talking to you rather than if someone was like mm, okay maybe it is is a bit of a hoax but it's not that much of a hoax they might be more convinced by that argument than me being like mm -mm, no no you're wrong mm. um but it's the people that are watching on the sidelines silently that are the ones that you want to convince. Because like you say, if you see 18 comments that are yeah. doubting the science, you're going to be like, oh, maybe it's not so settled. And if you see someone who's authoritative and has credentials being like, no, and here's why you're wrong in a logical, mm. calm, collected fashion, yeah. that can be quite compelling. The reason that you might not want to do that is because it takes an enormous amount of time. You are not going to be convincing that many people. Um, you're coming up against algorithms that quite frankly favor this kind of polarization yeah. and that feed off of it. And also it's an enormous undertaking for both your, your time and your mental health, to be quite honest. Like yeah. Catherine Hayhoe has had death threats. You get people piling on on Twitter. Like, I, I get it in a tiny, tiny, tiny sense in comparison to someone like her. Um, but it's, it really does take its toll. Like I've, 
I've posted a couple of um, media clips I've done on on you know mainstream media channels um, recently, and you get you know a thousand retweets and however many likes, and all of the comments, all of them to a T almost are climate denies, and it looks really really bad but then also that stuff is then reaching a wider audience so you're you're going beyond your echo chamber there's a silent majority who are you know enjoying that and being like yeah cool that that makes sense to me mm-hmm. and then there's this really vocal minority who are weighing in the, the kind of people that are going to comment on anything regardless of what it is are always going to be people, people that feel very strongly about something. It's like trip advice. You never write you, either one star or five yeah, star. Yeah. <laughs> you never, you're never going to write a three star review. Was okay. Yeah. Might consider yeah. coming back. Yeah. Like yeah. I didn't feel strongly about it. Like when have you ever read a review like that? It's always going to be either extreme. So it's the same here. And that is polarization of social media. Yeah. What, what I've started doing now and not in a, um, not on like I just I just shy away from it completely on Twitter just avoid it um but so like for example this Facebook post that the that the council had put out and it was something about something positive that they'd done or something around uh emissions or you know net zero goal or whatever it was and all these people so I just like ignored all the deniers and just went that's amazing thank you so much guys you know this is brilliant to see councils like your council leading the way in this or whatever because I just feel and and kind of similar like somebody in my community was saying there was a post that somebody had put up on Facebook about is it Temu or Timu they're a new sort of like Amazon-y type sheen type thing that are just sort of churning out crap and one of someone had posted it and and all these comments go oh my god it's so amazing it's so amazing it's so amazing and and she just went on there oh I'm really trying to avoid using them because I feel really uncomfortable about x y and z and actually got quite a lot of like likes on her comment and I was, and and it's the same, isn't it? There's probably a lot of people sat looking at these threads, feeling uncomfortable, fe- feeling too uncomfortable to challenge it, and then suddenly somebody says, "Oh, I I find this uncomfortable," or uh, uh, you know, and then everyone goes, "Oh," and you kind what of give relief. other people permission to be a bit braver <laughs> yeah. as well, don't you? And to and to try and kind of pull some of that perception of of what everybody thinks back mm. to somewhere a bit more sensitive yeah and positive that's my current tactic <laughs> yeah positive affirmative reinforcement yeah. probably goes a lot further than trying to negate stuff and yeah. I think that's always the way I mean how how do you how do you deal with I got asked to go on what's the really like right-wing tv channel GB news yeah like they were looking for someone to talk about something I can't remember what it was and god knows why they found my email address and they and they emailed me and I was like and I went back to them and I went um I, I might, but I, I genuinely feel really uncomfortable about coming on your show when I know that you probably just want to rip me apart. And and he was like, no, 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 no. But luckily, somebody else had stepped in by that point and and said they were going to do it because I was like, yes, we need somebody to do it, but I I I genuinely don't think I have the mental strength capacity to open myself up in that way to be absolutely ripped to shreds. Yeah, like it, it's very hard. Yeah. GB News I don't do because I don't think me going on there is going to change anyone's mind because mm, of its yeah. audience it's very small viewership as well like it's yeah. really extreme <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't think the only benefit to doing that would be if you did an amazing interview and then they clipped it put it on the internet and then you went viral that's like the only yeah, benefit yeah, yeah, actually yeah. the the risk to reward ratio I think is is out it's just not 
not in it for me. I will do talk TV um, okay. because I think that has a slightly... Oh, it might have been them. It might have been talk TV. Vanessa, Vanessa oh, Feltz. Vanessa Feltz, yeah, that's talk was... TV. Yeah, so... Okay, it was it was that, and, but I was still like, you know, I went and Googled it and I was like, mm, and they said, oh, Vanessa's not quite so extreme. And I was like, yeah, but still your whole channel is putting out this. Yeah, yeah. talk TV has some presenters that are fine. Vanessa Feltz tends to be fine. Um, okay. Dr. David Bull, he's fine. I've done him as well. Uh, I have also done JHB, so Julia Hartley Brewer, who's... Oh my god! Idle, awful yes. human being, but I felt really up for it. I was like, "Okay, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. I'm ready for her." Uh, but that's the one and only time I've really felt ready. Um, and wow. yeah, it's it's a fight. You have to be prepared for her to want to dismantle you in public yeah. for her viewers to enjoy. It's like a gladiator match. It's a blood sport, oh. um, and you have to feel it's very adversarial, and you have to really. She'll just like pick at weird weird yeah. little threads that's like climate deniers do generally like yeah. oh Cherry but that means that you think this and then that what you said is therefore this and yeah. just like no that's absolutely not what I said and you have to be really prepared to defend every single word that you say in that kind of uh instance and it's that's what climate deniers do they were like recently I had something where people were um copying and pasting elements of my website bio at me like what <laughs> What are your credentials? And then copy and pasting the bit of my uh, my website that says I have a qualification in boxing coaching. So, yes. That's... Yeah, that's my only qualification to be talking about. It's, also, it's my publicly <laughs> available website bio. Yeah. Like, do you think it's some kind of gotcha? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so speaking of Twitter, I had quite a harrowing morning because what I've done is I just went on Twitter and I actually picked... I think it was uh, Mark Maslin and um, I don't know, there was a few other people that I've I've seen on there just taking absolute beatings mm. from climate deniers. And so I was like, oh, I'll just pick one of their threads that's got a lot of comments and I'm going to screen grab some of the um, the lovely climate denial that, that uh, gets thrown at them. So if you're happy, should we just pick a few at random? Let's go for it. Bingo. Um, yeah, let's, uh, okay, just been a normal shit summer in the UK, nothing out of the unordinary, as I can see. I don't, it doesn't really make sense, but yeah, I, I think I've heard that a little bit. Oh, what you on about? It's been a really crap summer this year in the UK. Yeah, uh, undeniably, the UK has been relatively rubbish in terms of its weather. However, it is one of the warmest years we've ever had on average. Um, and outside the UK, we've seen a lot of extremes. So, funnily enough, the world isn't just not just the UK. Yeah. Um, just like in it, uh, you often hear this thing about 1976 as well. Like the hottest yes, summer. that was one of the things I was going to say to you last year when it was so hot, and there were all the boomers going, "What are you on about? It's much warmer in 1976." I wrote a Guardian article about exactly this because it was doing the rounds so much. Um, 1976 was really hot in the UK but nowhere else. And it was like right. this little red blob amongst a sea of like relatively normal or cool conditions. Whereas last year, everything was hot. This year, everything is hot. It's a almost universal experience that, you know, whilst you get ups and downs weather, you also mm. are seeing this kind of superimposed upon a really long-term trend towards much hotter temperatures. We are seeing much more extreme temperatures in summers now. Um, mm. You just have to look at the wildfires in Greece or in Hawaii or in Canada, um, the heat waves in China, in Chile, in the south of Europe, in North America, in Mexico, like anywhere you pick pretty much has had 
extremes this year. And the number of extremes, the length of extremes, the intensity of extremes, all of those are increasing. And the temperature on average is also increasing. And this is exactly what we expect from models, but also from the kind of our theoretical understanding of how climate change works. Okay. Um, What was the other? You were saying something then and I was like, oh, no. um, Oh, yes. But the wildfires were started by arsonists. Oh, yeah, of course. I forgot about that part. <laughs> no, uh, you, you have to have the right conditions for wildfires to occur. You have to have sufficient fuel. You have to have not enough moisture. So it, it has to be dry. It has to be hot enough and it has to have enough area to burn. Mm. And those kinds of wildfires often happen during heat waves and during droughts, which are all intensified by climate change. Mm. Um, and yeah, you might have a spark. It might be from lightning. It might be from arson or it might just be spontaneously initiated because of uh, the conditions and mm. all of these, the conditions for which in which that wildfires occur, they're happening more often because we're seeing less water availability mm. we are seeing more drought conditions we're seeing hotter temperatures we're seeing more extreme hot temperatures and we're not protecting uh our landscapes well enough or managing our landscapes well enough which is a set it's not a climate issue but it's a very related issue um and all of these are all of these conditions are leading to to more wildfires yeah okay right number two let's see what we've got Uh, Back in the 1970s, we were preparing our houses for the coming ice age. Schools in our area were built at the time, were very small, had very small or even no windows. Well, the ice age didn't happen. Then it was global warming and now climate change. Oh, so much in there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, not that many people in the 70s were predicting an ice age. In fact, we have been robustly predicting warmer temperatures for quite some time, including in the 70s. Two, (laughs) um, it's very patently obvious from observations that temperatures have risen. We've seen 1.2 degrees Celsius worth of temperature rise in the last 150, 200 years. Um, Things are changing very rapidly. And the, as I said before, the model predictions of temperature rise have matched pretty soundly against observations we know that temperatures are rising we can see that in our data Um, and if you don't like a particular data set if you don't like nasa you can check the japanese meteorological agency if you don't like the japanese meteorological agency you can check the uk's met office if you don't like the uk's met office you can try any number of Mm. other um but you're all in a big conspiracy talking to each other aren't you (laughs) of course of course we're all in you have these big zoom calls yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so i've actually got a phone call with the u.s president and actually just a few minutes so um <laughs> of course yeah of course you'll get these nutty conspiracy theorists that are going to come up with these wacky ideas about how climate scientists are all in cahoots quite frankly we don't have the time or the yeah. inclination uh all the money to do that yes. kind of uh ridiculousness um all of the data is independent it's verified it follows a standard approach and it comes from a variety of different independent sources and they all corroborate the same idea mm. that climate is warming uh global warming and climate change they are the same thing um mm. temperatures are rising we are causing it and it's having very clear and tangible impacts on people's lives all over the world another one Compare temps now to the Roman warm period. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's different um, patterns or like different specific periods people like to pull out. One is the yeah, there's a Roman warm period, the medieval warm period, the Little Ice Age. So this is although we have these very big scale cycles in temperature. So from glacial periods when temperatures are obviously very cool to interglacial, which is basically non-ice ages, uh, which are much warmer, which we're currently in, as you may have mm. guessed, <laughs> the temperatures can can rise a lot. But they follow a kind of uh, predictable pattern based on multiple different kind of geological patterns um, and orbital kind of uh, astronomical uh, patterns. So this is like... Um... The, the sort of shifts in the Earth axis. And so when people say that's why it's getting warmer, it's a shift in the Earth's axis, they're sort of talking about what has historically caused yeah. climate to change very slowly. Over and this happens over the course of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. And then, of course, we've also got the sort of patterns that are happening over millions of years. Mm. What people are talking about here is little blips in the more kind of uh, more recent records. So the last kind of few thousand years, for example, um, the Roman warm period or the medieval warm period are both kind of examples of where temperatures for a short time, like maybe a century, um, rose and then they fell again. Um, and it's the same with the Little Ice Age. Temperatures dipped. That's why we had, uh, you know, skating winter fairs in the 1600s mm. on the Thames. Um, and this is something, you know, rivers froze over. It was just much colder um, for a little bit. Um, and that happens. That that periodically happens. Because- How do we know it's not the same now? We're not having a blip. Because we can robustly link the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere with temperature rise in this instance um in we know we also we can unpick the causes of i can say do we know what caused those those sort of things and and i i was reading that, that they were both like quite localized like they weren't it's like that 1976 thing in the uk again so it's not yeah you have a, a a variation in a specific region that might be related to some ocean current or atmospheric okay. patterns um and that impacts the the local uh temperature mm-hmm. and local climate for a bit um whereas the global trend is upwards as a result of human activity um and it's it's the kind of the correlation, if you like, between uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution and the rapid acceleration in emissions and the rapid acceleration and concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that has caused the rapid acceleration in temperatures over the same time period, coupled with the fact that we know the exact mechanism by which carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases warms the atmosphere and therefore raises temperatures, and the fact that we can observe the predicted outcomes on the climate and on the atmosphere and the oceans now um, that that tells us that it's screaming us in the face that this is a human-caused climate change. Um, the other way that we can uh, extract this and demonstrate that it is uh, human-caused um, and look at the, the variations over much longer time periods is by running models, again, um, ones that include only natural factors, things like volcanoes, things like the sun, um, and comparing that to observed temperatures over long time scales. And then we can run another experiment, which includes human factors like greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. We add those together, and the the ones with only natural forcings do not explain the observed changes. The ones with the human forcing included 
does explain it. And that is again another another benefit of models is that you can run these hypothetical experiments, mm. but they're really helpful to demonstrate that natural causes like the sun or volcanoes don't really compare. They pale in comparison yeah. to, to human yeah. factors. Oh, this is one I've seen before. Funny thing, 35 years ago, they said exactly the same thing about the hole in the ozone layer. It was all the rage for a season or two. Then something else came up. Well, you know what came up? A really useful... Robust ban on CFC. <laughs> yeah, international <laughs> agreement to ban the cause of the ozone hole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we had... In in the eight, early 80s, we discovered the ozone hole. In fact, some of my colleagues right here, the British Antarctic wow. Survey, were a very important part of that. Um, and then three years later, three years later, an international, legally binding, all countries signed up agreement to ban the cause of that ozone hole was signed. And ozone depleting substances were outlawed. And fast forward to today... And we think that the ozone hole um, will largely have recovered to pre-1970s levels by the middle of the century. So it's a success story for international legislation. And I don't mm. understand why people use this as an argument in yeah. favour of climate denial. It went denial. away again because well, we fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> like we've, we actually did a pretty good job there and we should probably emulate that with climate change. Yeah, definitely. Um, this is part of a slightly longer tweet, but... Um, They said, you're not allowed to add context to the debate, let alone point out that our records began at the end of a mini ice age. They're saying again, that I guess we're sort of cherry picking the data. Um, Where do we get these records from? Do you hear that one a lot? Like, well, we didn't even have thermometers until, I don't know when it was, like 1850. How on earth are we measuring? Are we... How can we accurately say what the temperature was? Yeah. Um, So these are the same people that will say uh, temperatures in two million years ago were way hotter. Um, How did you get your thermometers there then? Uh, So we use proxy data to fill in the gaps where we don't have um, direct measurements. So, yeah, so when we don't have modern thermometers, for example, and we also have to adjust for changes in technology. So a thermometer in the 1800s is going to be very different to a thermometer that we use today. And you have to make adjustments to make the, the record consistent throughout. When you go really far back, you can use um, paleoclimate models. So models of like the really distant past um, that have you know different continental configurations or different um solar intensity because the sun has varied um or different uh rates of volcanic eruptions for Mm. example all of these things that we know from geological evidence to be true and then you can track way backwards to to figure out what temperatures were doing then or you can use proxies um or and i should say you can use proxies things like um corals or uh, cores from uh, sediments in lakes or in the ocean. You can take rock samples. Um, You can use isotopic analysis, which is like different flavors of different uh, elements that are preserved in different rocks. Um, You can take other proxies from tree rings. And there are so many different ways of doing it. And they all show the same thing. So you can can cross check them against each other. um, And obviously they need to be... um, consistent uh so you need yeah. to make sure they 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 match up to observations now so you can calculate exactly what those relationships are like but then you can use that to track backwards in time okay and that point that the that tweet was making about oh our records began or we're, we're cherry picking the data from the end of the i think he said mini ice age or the like 
and, and I've seen people do that with um people might be familiar with the the warming stripes uh, you know baseline periods yeah that, that it's just going from I don't know 1850 or whatever and actually there's there's I've seen various pictures where people have um and I don't know whether that they've attempted to extrapolate it or you know and said oh look it's always been you know red blue red blue two things on this um yes we own we often use the period from 1850 because we have better data and we that's when we started really changing the mm, climate in earnest mm. that's like the industrial revolution really that's therefore makes loads of sense because this is mm. the most important period in terms of modern climate change the other thing is if you're comparing we often because we're thinking about how much we've changed something we have to know what we're changing it in relation to so mm-hmm. we have a baseline period and this is um often a 30 year period which we're comparing modern temperatures against and people often it's a similar sort of argument it's like oh well you're picking a particularly cold baseline period. right yeah 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 but the baseline period um is chosen to reflect pre-industrial so non changed temperatures so kind of a background state um and that is pretty well defined um and it it's uh yeah it's abundantly clear that we are changing the climate and the fact Mm. that you can compare temperatures against any 30 year period and you can see a change the fact that we are we've changed the climate so quickly in such a short time frame that's what matters it doesn't matter that it was you know 70 70 degrees on average in the Hadean period which in which humans hadn't evolved crucially I was going to say that that was one of the other things is the like well it's been hotter before we've had higher co2 levels before humans went around though (laughs) (laughs) that's quite important too good luck trying to survive yeah yeah we also had periods where oxygen made up like nearly 30 percent of the atmosphere and stuff would just spontaneously combust wow but you know we're not we're not imagining that uh, humans were able to evolve or survive in yeah, that yeah, yeah, particular yeah. climate so yeah. it's it's kind of a moot point we evolved in a period where we evolved and we are changing the climate because we evolved in the holocene which basically means stable climate and we are making that climate less stable and that's the thing that matters is the rate of change and it's the fact that we're pushing ourselves out of our habitable climate. Yeah. And um, there's a few coming up that, uh, that are your specialist subject in terms of sort of Antarctic ice and things. But just one more before we move on to that. Um, plants love CO2. Ah, oh, CO2 is more plant CO2 food. Is good. One of my it's good because the plants like it. Yeah. Um, actually, studies show, although a modest increase in CO2 can increase plant growth in some limited situations they also need some other things to survive so things like water nutrients right environments and what makes plants grow less is things like climate change which increases their stress it increases their um they don't increase their tolerance to things like drought um if you have no water because of climate change you have extreme weather conditions whether that's huge hailstorms or record heat waves and loads of droughts or wildfires for example those are things that plants are more likely to be negatively affected by than the kind of short-term boost in CO2. And actually on the whole, um, CO2 increasing and the impacts on climate change greatly outweigh, greatly, greatly outweigh any positives associated with uh, more there being more plant food in the atmosphere. 
In fact, I, I think I might have seen something the other day, and, and I'm definitely trying to remember where I saw it, probably on the BBC or in The Guardian, they tend to be right. <laughs> but um, saying that that there is some uh, research coming out that that beyond a certain temperature, plants' sort of ability to take up carbon dioxide it becomes lower. Yeah, so it exactly. This is, this is kind of what I was alluding to at the very beginning of the answer, is that in certain circumstances, under specific conditions, often laboratory conditions, mm. uh, you can see a, a small increase, a small bump in the amount of plant growth. But actually, in real-world conditions, and when you combine it with all the stuff that's going on in the real world, like climate change, um, it doesn't have a positive impact. Okay. Um, so where was the Antarctic ones? Utter nonsense. They had the coldest winter at minus 81 degrees, which was the coldest on record. So I think this was somebody talking about the um the temperatures in Antarctic, and, and this was somebody's response to it. I got a lot of this particular article in an un reputable uh outlet posted at me this particular one okay um and it this is in response to both the antarctic sea ice minimum extent um and the antarctic uh winter extent being super low uh, and also this new paper that came out that showed that how extremes are reshaping antarctica um, one thing to to note is that yes cold temperatures happen in winter especially in antarctica that's not really very contentious, <laughs> I hope. Um, but just having uh, Antarctica is the size of like the same size as the continent of Africa. It's enormous. Okay. Uh, some of it is extremely cold and mm. will always be extremely cold. Um, but we are still seeing changes, particularly around the edges, which is where it matters. So we're seeing changes to floating sea ice which it surrounds the continent, we're seeing changes to floating ice shelves. And those ice shelves restrain, they act like a cork in a bottle. Uh, they keep, they hold back ice on land um, from flowing into the ocean. And that's what causes sea level rise. When you have glaciers okay. and ice on the land in Antarctica flowing into the ocean, that's adding to sea level rise. So if you... Because am I right in saying that like... If you've got sea ice and that melts, that doesn't change the exactly sea level. because it's already floating. Just like if you have ice cubes in your drink of water, yeah. it doesn't overflow as the ice cubes melt. That same idea. So anything's already floating. So an ice shelf or uh, sea ice, they both don't influence sea level rise directly, but they can influence sea level rise if they're removed because they act like this kind of glue that holds all the glaciers back. So if you lose them, the glaciers can flow into the ocean and that's what causes sea level rise. And the fact that we're seeing much more extreme uh, temperatures and extreme te uh, conditions um, means that you see more dramatic changes. So the loss, the collapse of ice shelves, for example, we've seen a couple of those recently, or like big chunks breaking off icebergs breaking off basically um and these sorts of extremes are transforming the antarctic environment and that's really important and i think the thing i found really hilarious about uh, lots of this like oh we had the coldest temperature is that a lot of them are using uh, comparing winter and summer which is you know a classic it's easily done if you live in the northern hemisphere to assume that summer in the northern hemisphere is the same as right. summer in the southern hemisphere yeah, yeah, yeah. but actually it's the opposite so um often this is it's another example of cherry picking because the um the casual reader might look at that and be like oh that makes no sense because that's clearly obviously uh some kind of misrepresentation of the facts but actually if you know that that coldest temperature um minimum was 
way high up on like it's like four four thousand. So that was like one level. point piece of data in say like uh, just for for sake of example a hundred temperatures and when you average them out you will see that it has been warmer on average in Antarctica. Yeah the the stations around the edges of the Antarctic continent are seeing warmer and warmer temperatures every single year and particularly on the peninsula which is the bit that's the warmest because it's further north Um, and the the temperature you're seeing more extremes um, I think in 2020, there was an extreme of 18 degrees. Um, then this year, there was 16, 17, 18. There's been a 19 degree recently. So all of these are like they're creeping up. And yeah. extreme temperatures are impacting not just the Northern Hemisphere, where we all live, but also the Antarctic. Last year, we saw a heat wave in East Antarctica with one of the highest temperature differences ever recorded on the planet it was like nearly 40 degrees above normal um and that's like the equivalent of um in the uk having a summer heat wave that's like 60 or 70 degrees yeah that's crazy why is it warming much faster at the poles what's the physics behind that in, in very simple terms so in the Arctic, it's particularly pronounced and it's often called Arctic amplification. And it's related to this floating sea ice thing. So where, when you have lots of sea ice, it's bright, it's white, it's reflective, it acts like a mirror. And any sunlight that comes into the Arctic gets bounced straight back out to space. And that keeps the temperatures pretty cool. What happens when you start warming the atmosphere in the oceans is that sea ice starts to melt away. And that means you're exposing more of the dark ocean underneath. And that dark ocean is much less good at being a mirror and it absorbs more energy so it kind of has this reinforcing effect where if you lose sea ice then you get the ocean absorbing more heat which drives more loss of sea ice which gets more heating and that has a really local impact so you get uh, the arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet um and that is this like local regional effect if you ever look at maps of how much the earth is warming you see these really red colors like really mm-hmm. a lot of warming up in the arctic and to some extent in the antarctic it's slightly less um apparent in the antarctic actually um although some research that's come out in the last couple of uh, days or weeks has shown that there might might be the early signs of the similar sort of thing happening in the antarctic but generally speaking it's really obvious in the arctic because the arctic is primarily a frozen ocean covered with sea ice or used to be covered with sea ice whereas the antarctic is a frozen continent surrounded by sea ice okay so saving the maybe the absolute biggie for last and I realize it's not really outright climate denial but what about China no point us doing anything what about China this one always always with the what about ism your face I might need to try and take some screen grabs of that. <laughs> um you know it's the it, yeah it's like what if we make things better without everyone making things better like mm. oh no we made our own country better um but also no one's going to do anything if no one else does anything you have to show leadership you have to show courage you have to look after what you can control ultimately if we reduce our own emissions whether that's individual level on organizational level on a local level regional national whatever that's going to make a difference and that matters it matters to you it matters to your community it matters to your country 
whatever kind of scale we're talking about. And um, whataboutism doesn't help. And also China is doing quite a lot in terms of um, green transition. And also you can't forget that a lot of um, manufacturing is simply exported to countries like China. And actually, if um, our demand for crap that we don't need went down, um, then lots of global emissions would go down. Um, and Chinese uh, pledges to reduce emissions account for like, I can't remember, it's like 0.1 or 0.2 degrees um, worth of the difference between where we're going to be at the end of the century. And if they become more ambitious, that'll be even more. And every tenth of a degree matters. Every tenth of a degree makes a difference. Okay. Um, we, we mentioned Catherine Hayhoe earlier and um, uh, like I'm a massive fangirl and and like her TED talk, if, and I'll link to it in the show notes if people want to go and check it out, is all about the importance of like talking about climate change. So I'm really trying to encourage people to to talk a little bit more about climate change by asking the question of friends, family, work colleagues, how do you feel about climate change? Like, I mean, I guess for you, it's slightly different because you are completely immersed in it. So maybe the question, hey, yeah, how do you feel about it? Like, are you completely freaked out? And then a secondary question of like, how optimistic or otherwise do you feel about the situation? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take the two biggies till last. <laughs> oh, it really depends on what day you get me. But um, deep existential dread. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and a pursuit of hedonism at all costs. Um, oh, really? Is that your sort of coping mechanism? Uh, just like have fun while you can? Yes and no. Uh, that was a semi semi facetious answer. Yeah. Um, the way that I. Not suggesting we all go and jump in our planes and fly. Uh, no, the way <laughs> I um, deal with it is I feel like, you know, I'm working on a subject that I really care about, that I feel like is my contribution. I like to see myself as a translator between science and everybody else. Um, You're both really good at that. It's one of the things I said to Adam is that often I think some one of the problems we've had is that we've got scientists doing really great science who aren't maybe, and we shouldn't particularly expect them to be, particularly brilliant communicators. Mm. Um, so we really need people like you and Adam who are able to to do both to bridge, to bridge the gap, gap yeah first. exactly and yeah. that's 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 where I see my real contribution being because like Catherine always says talking about it is such a powerful tool to actually get people to feel like it's worthwhile taking action and the other thing I always say to people is that you know you've got your democratic right to vote and you should use it mm. um, and you should also get involved in you know whatever kind of um, action makes sense to you whether that's you know joining a campaign group or signing petitions or you know you can go and throw orange paint at stuff if you like <laughs> but like obviously I'm not uh, necessarily uh, putting any uh, mm. strength on any of those in particular yeah but yeah. do what makes sense to you to contribute yeah. to to the solutions and that's the way that I stay optimistic because I f- feel the purpose um, and I feel like by contributing, being part of the solution is the only way I can stay optimistic about it because Mm. the threats, it's going to get worse. That's undeniable. Um, Even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases tomorrow, it would still get worse. Um, Can you explain that for people? Why would that happen? Because the impacts um, are likely to continue. For example, sea level rise. We've kind of push the system but the system takes a long time to kind of adjust so if you have when you slam on the brakes on a very heavy truck it doesn't Mm, immediately stop it kind of it skids to a halt over a time period with sea level rise with ice melting we're already committed to further uh change um and the impacts 
of like when it comes to extreme events, uh, weather systems and things like that are likely to continue. And some there's like some sustaining feedbacks. Obviously, if we stop tomorrow, that'd be amazing because we still be really good. <laughs> yeah, 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 just yeah. clarify that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in in the grand scheme of things, the 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 threat of climate change is is very profound and deep um, mm-hmm. and long lasting and it's very scary and it's very easy to be overwhelmed and scared by it but for me personally uh, the only way that I can overcome that to existential dread is by taking action and recognizing that there are so many people who care about it so many people who are mm-hmm. also trying to take action and there are so many reasons to take action there's so many reasons not just climate related like lots of the things that we can do are not just about climate change they're about our own health and well-being they're about protecting nat- uh, nature and biodiversity like restoring systems that bring us joy and uh, health benefits and benefits to our well-being you know having less fewer cars in our cities is going to be better for air quality it's going to be better for noise all of these things yeah, it's yeah. not just about climate change is a much more systemic holistic kind of approach mm. and if we can create a better world that's less unequal that's great in itself and all of these it's things like have- that lovely cartoon I'm sure you've seen it and I'll post it in the show notes of these people at, at I don't know whether it's supposed to be at a cop or whatever and and it's listing all these sort of benefits of of climate action and it's like well what if it's all what if it is all a hoax and we've created a better world for nothing yeah. it's that isn't it <laughs> what if we created a better world for nothing uh, a better fairer yeah. cleaner green yeah 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 amazing oh thank you so much for your time you've been absolutely brilliant and you are uh, I can't say how good you are at at making incredibly complicated you know what you must work on at a daily level in terms of the maths and the physics and these models and things and then coming and talking like a, a regular human being to us is <laughs> quite a skill thank you I appreciate that I do I do uh, wear my badge of being regular human being with honor <laughs> Well, you're a boxing coach. We all know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's my real qualification. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. Goodness me, it felt like we covered a lot there in that chat. And listening back, I inevitably thought of so many other things I wanted to ask Ella. So maybe we'll need to get her back on. But I really hope that that was useful. And I would love to hear your thoughts or your perceptions of how many climate deniers there are out there, how you feel about engaging with them online or in person, and how you feel about that tactic that we discussed of maybe not directly engaging, but just providing some alternative views on posts on social media. Do let me know your takeaways from this chat. And as ever, if it's prompted you to go out and do anything a little bit differently, because that's ultimately what it's all about. And I know I've said it before and I make no apologies. It's all about one small imperfect change after another. But obviously do feel free to throw in some big juicy changes along the way too. Okay, before we end, let's have this week's good news stories. I'm actually quite enjoying this segment. Please let me know if you are too. Being forced in some way or other to look for the good news rather than doom scrolling all the bad is in itself proving to be a really good thing, I think, for my own mental health. And I would really encourage you, if you fancy it, to bookmark some sites like Positive News or there's another one I found called Good News Network and I will link to both of those in the show notes. Take yourself off for a little scroll of them periodically. So here's my pick of the week. 
First up, the second annual Green Sports Awards from the BBC took place earlier on this week. These awards celebrate the athletes, former athletes and organisations that are working hard to enact and inspire change. Quick little side note, if you are interested in hearing more about the role of sports and sports people in tackling the climate crisis, do go back and have a listen if you haven't already to episode 156, The Power of Football with Rich Holmes. It's another goodie. Okay, so winners of these uh, Green Sports Awards included Pat Cummins, who is the Australia Cricket Men's Test and One Day International Captain. And amongst other things, he has created a Cricket for Climate Foundation that has helped a number of projects over the last year that have had a positive impact from organisational level all the way down to clubs. And I was really delighted to see Innes Fitzgerald win the Young Athlete Award. I saw some press earlier on this year, and some of you might have as well, covering the fact that she turned down the chance to represent the UK and compete at the World Championships in Australia based on her concerns about the impact of flying at a time when people around the world are suffering the effects of climate change. A hugely bold and courageous move, I think, from a incredibly talented and passionate young woman and really setting such an example for um, other athletes and other ordinary folk to follow. You can check out the winners, the other winners on the BBC Sports website and I have linked to that in the show notes. Good news number two. In the UK, or actually this is England news, so apologies Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but in the U- in England, a ban on single-use plastic cutlery came into force at the start of this week to actually very little fanfare or media coverage that I could see. The ban means that shops and hospitality businesses will no longer be able to supply plastic cutlery, balloon sticks and polystyrene cups. And government figures suggest around 1.1% billion with a b single use plates and more than 4 billion another b pieces of plastic cutlery are used in England every year so yeah stand by your beds to see what impact this latest uh, or this new ban has and finally as an example of the imperfect changes from ordinary tired people and I know they won't object to me calling them that um but these changes that really do make a difference I wanted to share a couple of ripples I like to call them from the sustainable clubhouse so Kate wrote I met up with a lovely friend last night who is a huge fan of fast fashion and fast homewares and she said that some of my social media posts about you don't need to buy storage containers you can reuse what you've got has properly stopped her from buying loads of those kinds of things And Libby shared, I just noticed that a few years ago, I was the only one on the street walking my kids to school. Now there are normally four other families also walking their kids to school who used to drive every day. One of them commented a while back that she saw us walking and thought that she should too. I would love to hear your good news stories and your ripples. Do drop me an email on jen at sustainableish.co.uk or tag me at sustainableish on social media. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts and do share with family and friends or on social media. I promise you it really does help. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Have a great week and I will catch you next time. Take care.